So anyway, let's begin today in our series on Romans, in Romans chapter 3 and verse 1. Uh, I want to read, this is the section of scripture we're going through. We're going through the book of Romans. Um, last week we looked at the problem, um, and we're still in the problem area here all the way really through chapter 8, although chapter 5 does take a turn. Um, Romans really has four sections to it. We've chosen to kind of take three and bigger chunks um, uh, big chunks, but smaller each week as we take a look at them. So um, this, this week's message is entitled, What's the Use? Has anybody ever said that? What's the use? And this is what Paul is challenging the Romans to. And their church, of course, is comprised of, of, of Jewish Christians, people that were in Judaism that came to know Christ. They were Greeks. It's Rome. The, Jew, the Jews were kicked out for about five years, and so the church began to get all these other traditions and things because the Jewish influence wasn't there. And then um, when, the, when they're able to come back, there's these problems because the Jews are like, how come you're not doing that? How come you're doing this? And so Paul's dealing with those things. So Romans 3, verse 1, I want to read all the way down through verse 8. It says, what then is, what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though every one were a liar. As it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our right unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? that God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. Some uh, paraphrase to say, I'm talking crazy to talk like this. And then he writes in verse 6, By no means, for then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds into glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just, or they are just condemning themselves. So there's a few issues he deals with that need to be unpacking, because once again, Paul says a lot, and some of what he says is Jewish speak. And so it has to be brought down to kind of unpack it in context. So first of all, if, if you recall, he finishes just blasting them. Remember last week, he blasts them for being religious. In chapter 1, we talked extensively about the fact that they were very pagan, loose-living Christians, some of them, and some of them, they, and he was talking just about the world to a large degree. Um, and so we talked about a lot of that. But then he goes after them, and then he lumps the, the Jews the Jewish heritage people that are believers, in with this pagan crowd. And they're thinking to themselves, why, how could you lump us even in the same sentence? It's ridiculous, right? Um, these loose living and downright pagans, you, you shouldn't do that. So after he provokes them a bit, basically saying just because you've been in church, because you have a heritage of being very religious, um, doesn't mean that just because you look like one on the outside, you're one on the inside. And he goes after them hard, and he does this because he loves the church, and he loves the people, and he, he wants to step them to step out of dry religion into relationship with a spirit-filled, God-experiencing life. So right after he tells them that their circumcision, the things that make them Jews, the, the mark of being uh, very Jewish in a culture that had no affinity for such things, it was a seal, it was a sign physically of who that they were, that 
their circumcision was supposed to be a transformation more on the inside of them than one that they could just perform in the flesh. After he tells them that being truly saved is nothing physical, after he tells them their Jewish traditions can't save them, then he starts the next sentence, the very next sentence in chapter 3 with, then what advantage is it being a Jew? <laughs> the value of circumcision. So he goes through all of this, and then he says, then what advantage is it? And by this point, I'm sure they're saying, well, pff, nothing. The way that you're talking, it, you know, there's nothing that is an advantage, right? It's funny because in verse 9, he, and we look at this next week, he says it has no advantage at all because all are under sin. So if us being Jewish doesn't give us an advantage with God, he's saying to them, then, then what's the use of being Jewish? And the Jews had gone through a lot of hardships, right? I mean, it's been really tough. They've been, they've been maligned. They've been trampled on. They've been abused. They've been tortured. Their land has been taken from them. They've been divided. And now they're slaves, really, under Roman rule. They've had a hard government on their shoulders. They've been taxed unfairly. They, ha they are a people in their own land, but they don't really govern their own land. They're, they're, all these things are unequal. They're surrounded by the Roman government. I'm reminded of uh, Fiddler on the Roof. Matave despondent because of his hardships of being a Jew. I, years ago, Pam and I went to see the play in Puyallup. And um, um, I forgot what theater group puts that on, but the main, the main stage, M-A-N-E. Um, but uh, we went to see Fiddler on the Roof, and, and Tave, a great character, and the movie says, I know, he's talking to the guy, he says, I know, I know, we're your chosen people, but once in a while, couldn't you pick someone else? I mean, don't you feel like that sometimes? It's like, God, I know I'm following you, but sometimes couldn't you just pick someone else? Friends, it must have been so important to Paul for a people he loves to bring this kind of rebuke to them because they have been persecuted. And they have been in this place of slavery and they've been in this place of unfair government over their shoulders. And he, Paul loves them. And so he's really trying to talk to them about the significance of their relationship with God. So Paul uses a scholarly form of teaching called a diatribe. Now, diatribe is different than the diatribe we use the term for today. But basically, it was used by Socrates, and it was a form of teaching where you ask uh, an imaginary person a question in the presence of people in order to rhetoric, you know, have this rhetoric back and forth, to banter a little bit. So um, to draw the contrasting points out. So he's been teaching in synagogues for a long time, and he's, he's prob all these questions are qu probably questions he's been getting, right? And, and even more likely, they're probably questions that, as a Pharisee before he became a Christian, is probably the questions he was asking himself. So he's really asking a lot of questions in this scripture. In verse 3, he asks, what if some were unfaithful? Does their faithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? And again, in verse 5, he asks again, if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what will we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? Now, Peter says, uh, when Peter writes in, in, in 2 Peter chapter 3, that, you know, Paul, he's one apostle, right? And Paul's another. So he says, you know, Paul, sometimes he writes things that are hard to understand. So if one Pharisee is telling the church one thing about that to another 
uh, teacher in the church, another apostle, excuse me, one apostle to the other, then uh, it, maybe it needs for us to have a little contemplation, especially being so far removed from what it, what it really meant. So if this, when we read this in the New Living, in fact, let me get it here, the New Living Translation, these first, listen to the way the New Living puts it. The New Living does compare uh, uh, um, original manuscripts with the uh, Dead Sea Scrolls and is an actual translation. Now, if you have a living Bible, we went over this in the Wednesday class. A living Bible is a paraphrase, but the living Bible, TL, uh, that, that is a, the new, new Living Translation, NLT, uh, not the Living Bible. NLT, the New Living Translation, is an actual translation. So anyway, he says, what's the advantage of being a Jew? Is there any value in the ceremony or circumcision? Yes, there are great benefits. First of all, the Jews were entrusted with a whole revelation of God. That's where we're going. But then he says, true, some of them were unfaithful. Or just because they were unfaithful, does that mean God will not be faithful or unfaithful? Of course not. Even if everyone else is a liar, as Scripture says about him, you will be proved right in what you say, and you will win your case in court. And then he says in verse 5, but some might say sinfulness serves a good purpose. What a ridiculous statement, right? For it helps people see how righteous God is. Isn't it unfair then for him to punish us? This is a merely human point of view, he adds that. Of course not. If God were not entirely fair, how would he be qualified to judge the world? But, some might still argue, how can God condemn me as a sinner if, I, if my dishonesty highlights his truthfulness and brings him more glory? I mean, what a ridiculous thing to say. And some people slander us, he says, by claiming that we say, the more we sin, the better it is. Those who say such things deserve to be condemned. Now that brings kind of a more savor to us because in just the plain English, he's, he's basically telling them, um, uh, basically he's saying that don't use grace as an excuse to sin. Now, that is a big issue. If we were to comparatively look at what Paul is saying to the church then, and today, as he's writing to God's people, how does that then translate to us? How do we go through life and continue sinning, saying, oh, God's grace will cover me? Then he says, those that do that condemn themselves. Christians do this all the time. Christian people do this all the time. James 4.17 says, it, as he writes, um, him who knows to do good and doesn't do it to him, it is sin. And there are sins that we sin all the time. There are things that we dive into or unfaithfulness or lack of integrity or uh, tithing is a big example. We know it's what God's prescription is for our finances, and yet we choose to ignore God's word. We know that he will bless us more when we trust him with what he calls us to do. Give, save, and live on the rest, right? And, but that's one, just one example of many. There are a plethora of things that we dive into. And why is that? Because it's not that we don't love Jesus. It's just that we love the world a little bit more. 
It's not that we, we understand the significance of Jesus' commission for us to get water baptized, an outward thing, which seems very simple, but it is in total rebellion and ignorance or just apathy or excuse against God's word to not do that and follow through with his example. You might say, Pastor, that's pretty legalistic. Well, I guess in some regard maybe it is. However, Paul says, and he's pulling no punches, that if you know what to do and you don't do it to you, it is sin. Praise God for God's grace. Amen. I mean, we encounter things all the time, I think, that we just do or, or that we say. <laughs> Let no filthy communication come out of your mouth. <sighs> Fliberty gibbet? Mm. Henway? Uh, what do we say? It's important to understand where he is going with these questions. And Paul, he does two very powerful things. He reminds them of their advantages and compels them toward grace. Two things. In the first verse, what advantage is there to being a Jew or what is the value of circumcision? In verse 2 he says, much in every way. Do I have that scripture? Much in every way. He says, you have an advantage, which is kind of ironic because in verse 9 he says you don't have any. But we'll get there next week. He's trying to make a point here. He's saying, you have an advantage by being a Jew. They were God's chosen people, right? They were God's chosen, and they knew it. <laughs> they often said it. Deuteronomy chapter 14, the Lord has chosen you. Isaiah 43, my chosen. You are my chosen to declare my praise. My chosen. Even though Paul says... Um, at, that being Jewish doesn't make them spiritual descendants, he does remind them of their advantages. In Romans chapter 9, look at verse 1, if you want to turn to Romans 9. He says this, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Verse 3, for I wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers. Now that, on the surface, that looks like, wow, he's, he, he wants them to know Christ. And basically, he does in a desperate way. He says, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. In verse 4, he says, they are Israelites. And to them, uh, belonging to the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs from their race, according to the flesh, is Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever so you know they have all of these blessings look at the list of benefits I mean it says that to them was given of the law the covenants they, they, they're the adoption they are God's family they belong to them belong the historical patriarchs they have a, a heritage of believing in God they've been given a lot of stuff for those of us who've been raised in church we look at this and go I praise God for those blessings amen if you came to God later in life here, you, you as well, you have a blessing in God that God has adopted you. So all of us have received the blessing of Jesus. And then it says that, and from their race, according to the flesh, is Christ. So through them comes the Savior. I mean, he's saying to them, you have a lot of things. But look at the second half of Romans 3, verse 2. He says, uh, you've been given much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. Now, the ESV, the NASB, and some of these others say, first of all, you have been given or trusted with the oracles of God, or to begin with. Um, but the New King James Version says, 
it's Romans 3, 2, it says, much in every way, chiefly, uses the word chiefly, notice the difference, because to them were committed the oracles of God. So chiefly versus first of all is putting the term in not just first place, but of utmost importance. When you talk about the word chief and you think about a, a ruler of a nation or a tribe or the chief elder, the one who is overall, you're thinking about a place of authority. You're thinking different things. So the word chiefly is a, is a better word there. So he says, chiefly, you have been given an advantage. And that advantage, the Bible. The Bible is the word of God. Now, if you're raised in a Christian home, you have some advantages. Much in every way, right? Just like Paul says. Now, hearing someone's testimony of being delivered from this or drugs or alcohol and they went through a life of abuse or murder and in a horrible family situation that maybe that was just terrible and they were these just awful people and they're doing all whatever they want, hurting others, stealing, doing all this kind of stuff, uh, leaving people in chaos and dismay, and they come to Christ and God saves them and brings them out of their addiction and gives them His grace and brings them into... We look at that person as someone who's been in church all their life and we go, that is awesome. I wish I had a testimony like that. But friends, those of you who have been in church your whole life do have a testimony like that. You've been safe from all that stuff because you've been around this longer. That's the power of the Word of God in a living out loud life. Now, there's a lot of people that run from that. Or they try to figure out ways to discount the power of the transformative work of the Word of God. Because the, the Bible just doesn't teach us how to live. When we absorb it and put it in our life, it gives us a new lifestyle. We begin to live differently and enjoy life more. Um, there's a, an account in history of the mutiny on the bounty. The bounty was a ship. Anybody ever heard of that? I bet most of you have heard about the mutiny on the bounty. Well, the, the backstory is really important because the Bible played a huge role in the mutiny on the bounty. So there was a ship that sailed um, from England called the HMS Bounty in 19, or 1789. 19, yeah. In 1789. And the crew was commissioned by the British government to go to the islands of the South Pacific um, growing fruit and fruit trees and, and bringing seed, different seeds of things they wanted grown and taking back some of the, the uh, pl potted plants. And so if you're from England and you're in a dreary weather all the time and it's rainy and cold and you're now in the surf among palm trees and beautiful Tahitian women, well, you don't want to go back to England. And, and so it's sort of like Todd and Pandora going to Florida you know, someday they're going to go to the beach and leave us all in the cold and the rain behind. Very sad. <laughs> oh, Anyway, so they're there, and they didn't want to go back. They loved the climate. They loved the local girls. That was a big thing. So there was this mutiny on the bounty, and the king of Tahiti was very powerful. And uh, when they're getting ready to leave, they, they leave with Captain Bly. You've probably heard reference to Captain Bly, um, who is actually kind of a hero in the story in a way. But um, they set adrift, uh, they, or they, they go out to sea, and they're going to head back to England with all the things, and the men do not want to go. Well, um, uh, a man named Christian uh, led the mutiny, and 
tied up Captain Bly, put him on a, a skiff, a boat, and off of the ship and set him adrift. And nearly 3,000 miles where, from anywhere he could, he could get help. And so um, they go back to Tahiti, and the king of Tahiti's like, dude, you've done a bad thing. England's going to send an armada after you and hunt you down. And so what happens is um, they decide that, uh, eight of them, decide that they're going to leave the island, they're going to leave Tahiti, and they're going to go somewhere else and so that the king can't find them, somewhere they can't find them. Some of the men choose to stay back on the island. Um, years later, 20 years later, um, so Christian brings these guys to a place. Excuse me, let's go back to the story. He goes back to this place, and the eight men and 11 Tahitians, um, men and women, mostly women, are on the ship. Eight men's barely enough to sail this ship. They get to a, an island called the Pitcan Island, and it's, it's not even really on the charts. They encountered it on the way to Tahiti, and they took the charts from Captain Bly. And so they're on this island and with these women, and it's total debauchery, right? They learn how to distill whiskey, and it turns into this terrible thing, and all of the men died off. A couple of them were actually murdered by two of the Tahitian men. There was some jealousy over uh, the women who was going to have what wife. Um, and and what, what happened, there was this man, as one of the crew, his name was Alexander Smith. His real name was John Adams. Um, but Alexander Smith was going through the belongings of the soldiers that had died. And, and, and keep in mind, here he is now on this island with only a couple of Tahitian men, all the women, all the children that are left. One woman died. She fell off of a cliff. But, and, and, and digging through the belongings of one of the other sailors, he finds a Bible. During this time, Captain Bly miraculously makes it back to England. He gets back to shores outside of um, Africa in a British colony established. He gets, and so he tells the whole story to the admiral's uh, ship, and, and they, they're going to send ships after him. But in the meantime, the Pitcairn Island, they burned the ship because they didn't want the temptation of leaving Pitcairn Island, and they didn't want it to be seen by any other ships coming by. So he finds this Bible. Alexander Smith finds this Bible, and he begins reading this Bible, and, and he begins to believe the Bible, and ultimately becomes a Christian, and he begins to teach the women and the children on the island how to read from the Bible. And so he's teaching them. They're learning perfect English. He did daily classes with the children and women. They were brought, and so he, he teaches them from the Scriptures. Now, fast forward 20 years. Now, mind you, what had happened, left to their own wiles, we have a Lord of the Flies thing going on. Right? I mean, they're killing each other. The hierarchy is people are angry and everything. But now, 20 years later, the, uh, 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 a ship comes along, and the British finally found them. And essentially on that island, what they found instead of debauchery, they found a mini-utopia where there was order, there was no disease, they were living in harmony, they were living in prosperity and peace, there was no crime, there was uh, none of this kind of stuff, there was no immorality, there was no illiteracy. In fact, when the first whaling ship came just 10 years after, they were surprised that the children that greeted them and came out on the little uh, canoes spoke perfect English. It just goes to show you, if left alone with only this, what can transform your life? See, Jesus just doesn't change a life temporarily. He changes your lifestyle. That's what we as believers is our part of our testimony. 
that the strength of Christ to deliver us from the addictions in this world, the cursings, the, the foulness, the yuckiness, the wickedness, the evil, the, the, all of the immoral things in this life, in this world, Jesus saves us from that because we know how he wants and desires for us to live. There is a life that gives praise to God that flows from the morality, the prescription, the identity with the Bible. If we do not put the Bible into our lives and in our homes, we're just going to get a nasty pit can. But if we put it in and insert it into our life, it will change the way we think. It will change the way our children think. It will change the way we think in our marriage. It will cause us to change the way we think about uh, authority. It will cause us to change the way the, the, th the things that we watch. It will create more boundaries and lines in the things that please God rather than the things that don't. And we'll begin to live a more fulfilled, purposeful, direct life because God is speaking to us. The number one way that God speaks to us is this book right here. Now, that's a pretty bold statement because chiefly, he says, the oracles of God were given the Bible. So what is the Bible? Is the Bible a human book or is it a divine book? Uh, is it written by men or is it written by God? Well, there are three basic opinions about Scripture. One, some think that the Bible is just the words of men. So they're good words, they're inspiring words. But sort of like Michelangelo or Plato, a good, uh, a good artist or a good author, it's inspiring. It's just written by men. That's about the degree of it. Um, and the Bible encompasses the highest level of human thought and inspiration, but it's still not God's word. Secondly, there's another group that believe the Bible is both, that it is both the written by men and the words of God just put together. So it has error with the divine and they alone are the ones that can tell you which is which so you can pick this is this is divine but this is written by people so you know let's just take the divine and throw this other part out that says this uh, we don't like that it's like going to a buffet right you go through and get all the mashed potatoes and gravy and fried chicken and all the chocolate you can fathom you know in god's buffet is a balanced meal it has good stuff you know, and it has, and after a while, you begin to live better, you feel better, you, all those things that we love about dieting, right? But finally, there are those people that believe the Bible is the Word of God. Now, and that's my position. That's what we teach here at Abundant Life, that the Bible is the Word of God. It's written under the authority of God, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit by men under the authority of God. Second Peter chapter 1 and 20 puts it this way. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. Something to realize about the Bible, it's black and white. And I've said this many times, and some people say, what about this and this? There's one interpretation, many applications. There's a lot of places in Scripture where people might draw maybe a different conclusion about some facet of prophecy, sometimes, very few though. And there are some things that people disagree about um, what the intention of the words were. That doesn't mean that the literary, literarily it's not correct. It is. And we believe those to be the words of God. So we understand that God gave this. So he says, didn't come from someone's interpretations. It came from God. In verse 21 he says, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of a man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. I love this word moved. 
The word moved refers to, it's, it's a maritime word. So the setting of the sail, in other words, they're moved along. So basically they cast their sail and the Holy Spirit directed them. Blew in their sails. They, they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So the writers had their own styles. They raised their sails to the voice of God, the Holy Spirit. The Bible then is foundational for authority. It's foundational for authority. And this is really important. Because there's two worldviews based on, uh, on two individuals. The one worldview is based on man, and the, one, the other one is based on God. Man, nature, God, divine. The Bible record is theistic in that it's creationist. The other is humanistic, a rejection of God as creator, and believe that science is the only proof when in fact science is only continually proving what the Bible has been saying all along. Principally, Romans 1.20, which we were in uh, weeks ago, says that God does this so that mankind will know God when they look at creation. Then there's this other thing that, that comes from, we have a worldview, but it comes from somewhere, and it comes from doctrine. And doctrine is, has two belief systems. There's two sets of philosophy that define what doctrine is in the world today. One belief system bases God on the fact to be a creator and, and comes from the Bible. And the other belief system on atheism or agnosticism. Evolution is heavy. And, and they debate uh, has been whether that God and the Bible or nature itself made and perfected the universe. So there's these two theological arguments. There's these doctrinal things. So who's in charge? Who's the boss? All of this, really the question is, who's in authority? <coughs> Who you give authority to will define your worldview. Who you give authority to will help you discern your doctrines. And when we have a wrong theology, we get a wrong concept of the world and where it came to be. And that's why this who's the boss idea, this question of authority, simply put, people that reject God because of authority, I don't want to have anybody over me, I don't want to submit to anything, I don't believe what he says anyway. When I push that authority to side, I'm just left to everything else. The authority of ourselves, what we can do, the unholy trinity, me, myself, and I, right? Without God's authority, mankind creates a humanistic worldview. The battle over creation is not a science issue, it's foremost an authority issue. Uh, as far as Genesis is concerned, the heart of the issue is authority. The, is the Bible trustworthy or not? More importantly, is the author of the Bible God? Is, is he trustworthy or is God not trustworthy? Is, it, then God is supremely exclusive authority on all matters about which he writes. Is the, if that is true, then wow, we've got something to do here. If God is the author of all truth and, and no untruth or no lies, then the very next scripture is purposefully, the, then the very text of scripture, the thing that we hold in our hands, is very purposefully and supernaturally written and inspired and trustworthy and given to us. Because of that question of authority, we've got to realize that all authority belongs to the creator. The Hebrew word for God is Elohim, a plural noun. And, and in our Wednesday class, we went over this. The Father is the will, the Son, the Word, the Holy Spirit, the work of God. The three W's. Will, Word, Work. 
And when we see God and we understand he is, he is announced this way in the scriptures, he has explained this way to us. Scripture says that the Father planned creation, the Son did the construction in John 1.3, and all things were made by him and the Spirit of God energized the world and hovered over the faces of the deep. So we have a very powerful creator making, speaking, and moving and doing all these things, creating everything, giving life. That would make him the boss. That would make him the authority. If you had all the resources to build a rocking chair and, and you had all those in your possession and you milled it and cut it and sanded it and drilled it and put it all together and, and you alone had the resources for that, it's yours to use. God created everything. Everything is under his authority. God takes care of his word. Friends, the Bible is the most documented historical book in the history of the world. The fact is that Scripture is consistent. God verifies, God describes, and cites His creative power without alteration throughout the entirety of Scripture. The words and phrases aren't complex to grasp, but they do require belief. You see, faith is a thing that creates power from the Word or diminishes it. The New Testament documents are better preserved than the more num- and more numerous by far than the works of Plato, Aristotle, Homer, Socrates, any of the other ancient writings. Because they're so numerous, they can be cross-checked for accuracy, and they are very consistent. There are presently 5,686 Greek manuscripts in, ex- in existence today for the New Testament alone. If we're to compare the number of New Testament manuscripts to the other ancient writings, we find the New Testament manuscripts far outweigh the others in quantity by far. There are thousands more New Testament Greek manuscripts than any other ancient writing in the entire world. The texts, when compared to one another, are 99.5% textually pure, with only words that, uh, cha- that uh, some verbs are in front of some words that, that should be after in different words ways are presented, but it all means the same thing. In addition, there are 19,000 copies in the Syriac, Latin, Coptic, and Aramaic languages. Profound. The total supporting New Testament documents is based over 24,000 pieces. How high do you think the stack of New Testament manuscripts would be? Think about this. Of just the 5,800 Greek and New Testament manuscripts, there are more than 2.6 million pages. Combining both the Old and New Testament, the Bible that we have today, there are more than 66,000 manuscripts and scrolls. Do you think it would hit the ceiling of this church if we were to stack them on top of each other? A four-foot stack of manuscripts is the average for writers like Plato, Socrates, and Homer. Homer, down there. About, about yay high or so. Um, compared to over a mile high, a mile just for the New Testament. If you add the Old Testament, two and a half miles high. 1947, the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered and, and, and were a very powerful discovery because they corroborated the Bible. Found years, many centuries later. So, a couple centuries. But the, the other manuscripts survived in its entirety. What other manuscript has survived? Well, there's a few, but there's no other manuscript that it has more pieces and fragments that are inspired in a large area like the Bible does. And 
the theological evidence of the Bible directly one thing, but more than 10,000 references in the Old Testament and more than we can accurately give an account for the New Testament and other writings that speak of the Scriptures. So what group of people, other group of people, are persecuted, burned at the stake, uh, and, and never change their story like Christians? None. i got to tell you, to me, that's the most profound testament to the Bible, that they were to give up everything, including their life, under such severe persecution to defend its truth, not even changing their tune, and promise that they would be saved from a fiery death if they would just renounce the Scriptures, and they would not. The Bible has 66 books written over 1,500 years by 40 different authors, but it tells one big story of God's salvation through the sacrifice of His Son, Jesus. You can't even pass a secret around with 12 people and get the same message. <laughs> the 300 specific prophecies in the Old Testament that are fulfilled in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus in the New Testament. The fulfillment of prophecy in the Old Testament should be enough to convince the that uh, anyone that we're dealing with a supernatural piece of literature that is very profound and a major of the great leaders and thinkers in history have confirmed the truth of the impact of the Bible. In fact, it was our own ver very own Abraham Lincoln who said, I believe the Bible is the best gift God has ever given man. All the good from the Savior of the world is communicated to us through this book. But if for, but for it, we could not know right from wrong. Still an argument raging on today. The early church has an extremely high standard for the books of the Bible. They, they were included in the Bible. It had to be written uh, by apostolic or, uh, some, um, or someone in the immediate circle. It had to conform to the basic Christian faith and had to be widespread among the churches and accepted and received because there were a lot of people wanting to change things even back then and insert their own words. But they were wrong and inconsistent, so they, were, they didn't allow them in the canon of the Scriptures. And, and, and it, there's so many over the years, friends, that have known the Bible and, and, it's mo and, and trusted in its words and throughout history. And they really make it the most reliable place to finding the, the key to peace and life and love and good works and all the things we ought to be producing from life. I'm reminded of William Tyndale, who was burned at the stake and strangled for translating the Bible into English for the common person. He had to hide out, moving from one place to another to do his work. The king ordered Tyndale copies of the Bible to be burned, but the word lived on. God takes care of his word. From Martin Luther to Aristotle, I mean, God, God has preserved his word. He has taken care of it. And you know what, there are some things about that that may, should make us very faith-filled because, friends, this book, the things that are contained in it about the, the life, death, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, the power of the Holy Spirit for you and I to live today, the Bible is a book that is unlike any other book. It is something that we hold in our hands and we throw on our shelves or nightstands sometimes so carelessly, and yet within its pages are the words of life. It is unchanged. It's unchangeable. It's, its history is infallible. The life it has is, is certain. The future that it offers is very hopeful. It, it, its laws are just. The promises of God in it are very true. So we can take it to the bank. We can trust its words. We can hold on to the future that it promises. God's word is all-encompassing. It can't be uh, added to and made any better. It can't be taken from to make it any better or worse. Uh, it is what it is. Its opinions don't 
really matter on your scale of justice. They are what they are. It's unapologetic because it, its biases and opinions are not politically correct. It's not Republican. It's not Democrat. It's not conservative or liberal. It defines itself. It has no other need for external definition. No one could ever describe it adequately enough because it is the Word of God. It holds within us the key, the introduction to Jesus of eternal life and power. A life lived today, friends. And I want us to know this because sometimes, and what's happening today is the churches, we're taking all of our time holding picket signs and we're, we're shooting at the, the issues of the world and we're angry about abortion and we're angry about the pornography uh, manifestation in our culture. We're angry about all these things. So we keep shooting at all these things that the, that the world has and the whole time the world strategically and smartly, as Satan knows, is pointing directly at the foundation of which we stand on trying to erase the truth of the Bible when all the time we're not pointing our direction at the philosophies of what builds those things. We're, they're aiming at what, what builds us up and encourages God's people. Friends, we ought to be aware of this because we have three mandates that direct our mission. Number one, to be filled with the Holy Spirit. The revelation of God, the Bible says no one comes to the Father, the Spirit draws him. It is the Holy Spirit's work that compels people and draws them to Him. A few months ago, you saw me show the, the video or tell the story about the young man who came to Christ in, in um, um, Afghanistan. And his mom told him, get out of the country. Because he's been having dreams about Jesus and coming to Jesus. And he said, your dad's a general, your brothers are uh, higher up in the military, and they'll just kill you. So he flees the country and he goes and, and he um, winds up meeting a Chinese man and, and gets saved and comes to America and one of the dorms in a college is named after him in a Bible college because he wanted to go into the ministry and he went back and became a missionary to his country. Why? Because the Holy Spirit compelled him. If you've ever felt the conviction of God, if you've ever felt a, a drive to know him more, it is the Holy Spirit compelling you. Be filled with the Spirit. Be Seek God every day. Say, God, fill me with your Holy Spirit. This is the first prerequisite for those in ministry. It's the first prerequisite for those following Jesus to ask God every day to be, be continually filled. God, fill me with the power of your Holy Spirit. I need to experience you. Friends, God is experiential. This isn't some dry liturgy we're standing up and talking. I'm not that good. The Charlie Brown one, and we say, oh, yeah, 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 whatever. It's the Holy Spirit speaking, having ears attuned to hear what he is saying to the church. And friends, this is the biggest place, this is the number one place where God's people need to be filled with the Holy Spirit because we hear a lot of word and a lot of promises. There's a lot of preaching out there, but unless we have the Spirit of God. Secondly, we're called to study the word. 2 Timothy 2.15, do your best. He says, do your best to present yourselves to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble. It will lead people to more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. <laughs> Boy, what parallels to our age today. But the, the, the power of this, Paul did this himself. In fact, you know, the Apostle Paul gets knocked down, sees this blinding light, and the guy writing Romans to us, what does he do once he converts to Christianity? Does he go immediately start preaching? 
He goes to Antioch for a year. Hangs around Barnabas and the church elders and gets, gets poured into and has debates and learns uh, arguments about the word of God. What does he do? He learns. And if he, the, the chief among the apostles in my opinion, that we know of here, if he could do that, then we should be about studying God's word as well. Three, learn how to defend and explain the gospel effectively. Again, 1 Peter 3.15, But in your hearts regard Christ as Lord as holy, and as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the hope that is in you. Are you ready to make a defense for being a follower of Jesus? What words would you have to say? I encourage you to be here on our Wednesday night class. and We're learning some of those. And then to make the Bible more than just a book, we've got to engage its truth with faith and trust it. Paul confronts the church with this very point. You have the word, he says. You have the promises of God, the oracles of God. Now live them by faith. The writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 4, 2, the good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. You can listen to somebody drone on and on and on about how to fix a carburetor, you know, on a Chevelle. You know, it's like, you know, and, and, and if you have no interest in the little jets inside of there and, and how to replace them and the little O-rings that are very consistent in the carburetor, if you have no interest whatsoever, you're not inclined to listen to anything that's being said. But friends, if you have been impacted by God, and you are filled with the Holy Spirit, and God has revived you to the truth that He is alive, and He has given you His very word, you're going to want to know something. We don't sit on the back row with our arms folded and say, hey, yeah, just whatever. It'll just work itself out. And just like Paul rebuked the Jews for, for just sinning, so that they because they had grace as an excuse, I'm getting to heaven, I don't need to do that. I don't need to get baptized. I don't need to worship. I don't need to be like the psalmist says. I don't need to clap my hands. I don't need to do what, I don't need to pray in the spirit. I don't need to do any of that stuff. I'm just going to hang out right here. I'm totally happy just to stay like I am. I don't want nothing more. I don't want no one to challenge my thinking. I've already made up my mind about what I may, I'm going to do, and I'm going to do what I'm going to do. And Paul talks to him and says, you're, you're condemning yourself. That's what he says. Because they didn't, when they heard it, they didn't combine it with faith. It didn't mean anything. The information didn't translate to revelation. Outward identity with God's people is one thing, friends. Outward or inward conformity to the principles of God's word is quite another because what we know inside is what ultimately comes out. People of the world don't just get a new life. But people of the word do. You know, people of the world, we can just stay like we are. People of the word get transformed. You know what the beauty of this is? We're seeing this at work in our, our very own church, friends, where we've been pressing in, we've been praying, these prayer groups that are going on, these, these different, um, the, like tonight's prayer meeting is, is just a, uh, it's just an illustration of that where it's beginning to work the way it should. 
or ministries flowing from prayer rather than prayer trying to produce things we have no power to do. Lord, help us with that. Help us to get into the spirit and trust your word, Lord, and the promises of it.